Aloha lovelies, it's Joe, aka the Curvy Geeky Fangirl, and I am back again for my weekly podcast, recapping all of the geek in my week, specifically TV, this week. I occasionally recap stuff that I'm watching film-wise, but I'm probably going to postpone that. I did catch the latest Captain Marvel, but I'm not going to be talking about that this week. I'm going to give it a beat before I jump into spoilers so everybody who wants to watch it can get in there. Um... Instead, I'm going to be dedicating this entire episode to two shows in particular. I'm going to be talking about The Magicians and Doom Patrol. I have some catching up to do with both of those shows. So I'm going to be diving into The Magicians episodes six and seven. We're talking a timeline in place as well as the side effects. And Doom Patrol's episodes three and four, which is Puppet Patrol and Cult Patrol as well. Clearly there's a theme happening with Doom Patrol. It's just like whatever the topic is happening for that episode and then plus patrol. So, I mean, I'm not mad at it. It keeps things simple. So I'm gonna be talking about all of that. As you guys know, when I go into these TV shows or films or books or whatever it is I'm talking about, heavy on the spoilers. I ain't scared of no spoilers. So if you have not caught these particular episodes and you wanna catch up before you tag in and listen, Pause here, catch up, come right back so we can get back into our discussion, so we can talk about the things, you know. So, all of that, all of that, all of that. A little bit of self-promo. As always, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and my website, curvygeekyfangirl.com. You can find this podcast through Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and damn near anywhere you listen to podcasts. It keeps growing. I recently found me on Himalaya which is an app to listen to podcasts too. And it's an app I was looking into using anyway. As much as I love, I you know, Apple's, I, is it podcast? Apple podcast, I think it's called. As much as I love it, it's not always easy to find some of the podcasts I want to listen to. And their new format doesn't make it super easy to find like a specific episode. So... No shade, no tea, but I was looking into other apps to listen to podcasts through, came across Himalaya, and I found me on it. It was a highlight, a highlight. So wherever you listen to this podcast, please do your girl a solid and comment, rate, and subscribe wherever it is so you can get more of this dope geekness, and I'm going to go ahead and get it started with these recaps. Like all things geeky and nerdy, check out ForAllNerds.com, a site that strives to uplift people of color in pop and geek culture. Yours truly is the fashion and lifestyle editor over there with tons of fandom fashion sets for cosplay inspiration and everyday geek wear. Check out ForAllNerds.com today. All right, so we're just going to jump right into the magicians. I'm going to start off with episode six which is a timeline and place. And per usual, I'm gonna break these down by character because there's a lot of characters in The Magicians. There's a lot of characters in The Magicians. And honestly, I'm constantly amazed at how well the writers handle all of this. Granted, depending on who your fave is, you may not always get as much time with them as you'd like. A lot of people like Katie, they were missing her. 
they're gonna miss her for this episode as well because she's not in this one so anyway i'm still amazed at how they managed to do all of that but let's go ahead and break it down so i'm gonna break it down with what i thought was the biggest storyline which was alice alice and modesto uh, we pick up with our girl alice right after her i don't even understand what she was trying to do with quentin in the previous episode this is right after the the flop attempt to try and, and I guess control the beast, imprison the beast. I keep calling him the beast. It's the monster. Imprison the monster back in the spire. Um, but it failed miserably. Mostly because A, Elliot's still alive in that be- in that monster. I keep calling him, I want to call him the beast. Elliot is still alive in that monster. We can't have Elliot trapped in the spire because then he will never get out. They won't be able to save their friend. So Quentin, last minute, stopped the... Uh, well, the, the really gross blood from a stone that was supposed to drop onto the monster. Stop that from happening so they could try to save Elliot after Elliot's message finally made it through. Um, we had Alice come back from being imprisoned by the library. I, again, what? So she had finally made her escape, stole the world book from What's-His-Face, the guy who wrote Fillory and Further, and trapped him in a poison place. Uh, and then <laughs> came back to, like on Quentin's doorstep like, all right, so here's what's going down. I'm trying to stop you from getting murdered. Um, I'm ready to make amends because, you know, I fucked it up all last season. I was the bane of everyone's existence, but I feel like we should all get over it. Kind of, basically, was what her whole thing was. Of course, it did not go over well, and to the shock of everyone, myself included, Quentin didn't immediately take her back. There's always been, like, this back and forth of fuckery between Quentin and Alice, and honestly... If you want to be 100% about everything that went down, Alice's whole turn in the previous season is because of Quentin. Honestly, like everything else that had gone down, her sacrificing herself for their friends, her reluctant comeback, like all of that was because of Quentin. So he kind of brought, this was all a harsh consequence of Quentin deciding when she gets to die and when she gets to live. So it's his fault. But anyway, She's looking for validation. She's looking for forgiveness. She feels she should get it <laughs> because she she doesn't want to be a bad person. And if she can get Quentin to admit that she's fine, then she's going to feel better about herself. He doesn't. It doesn't happen. So we pick up with her just being like, well, forget it. I'm just going to figure out what else I got to do with this world book. If we remember, the world book tells the person who's, I guess, reading it, searching in it. Where, they're, where they belong, where they're supposed to go. This is magicians. So I find it very hard to believe that this world book is just benevolent. And it's like, this is where you're gonna be most happy. I don't feel like that's what it does. The exact phrasing they use is, it tells you where you're supposed to be. That could be anywhere, a poison place. So Alice looks into it. It tells her to go to Modesto, California. She goes to Modesto, California, and we find her trying to rent a space uh, or a room uh, in the house of this lady who is quite familiar. I should have looked up her real name. I didn't. So uh, her name for the show, though, is Sheila. And she's cool. Sheila's pretty cool. She's taken over the house. Her mom has just passed. She's laying down the rules for Alice. She's mad chill about everything. She's like, do what you got to do. As long as you pay rent and don't do anything insane, we good. We find out Sheila is more than meets the eye. She's actually someone, something called 
a queromancer, which means that she's got the ability to find things. She's a Hufflepuff, y'all. She's a Hufflepuff. She's a great finder. So when we see her put that ability to use, uh, she finds money deep in the woods behind, I guess, behind her house. They kind of make it look like it's behind her house. She finds money that she can put up to uh, to pay for surgeries or operations or medicines that's needed for a girl that's sick that goes to her local church. She uh, is, re- I don't want to say reluctant, but we find out she can do magic. Alice figures out she can do magic. And immediately Alice is like, we need to talk about this <laughs> because I am dope at magic. You know who's great at magic? Me. So they start talking. We find out that Sheila kind of just came into her abilities not too long ago, like right after her mom passed is when she was suddenly able to like find things and she's kind of been using it to make things right in her area. We find out Modesto's on bad times. They've got lead pipes that's starting to leak into the main water. Uh, uh, just tons of people who are hurt or sick or need help. And she was feeling like, I know if I have these abilities, I, I'm in a point in my life where I understand the purpose of doing good and I wanna keep doing that, which is good for Alice. So we kind of see why Alice has to be there. We also find out they have quite a lot in common. Sheila also either had an addiction to alcohol or drugs or alcohol and drugs because uh, she knows what it's like to lead a destructive life when she's talking to Alice about their experiences. And uh, she lets, she gives Alice some, she drops some wisdom on Alice and basically tells her drugs, alcohol, magic, you know, it's not necessarily good or bad. They're, they just are. And it's up to you what you're doing with that. I'm sure some people would fight her on the drug situation, but uh, I get I get the premise. I get the overall idea of what she's trying to say. Well executed. So we see all of that. We see the shenanigans that happen in Modesto now that they both can do magic and she's teaching Sheila how to do magic. Sheila discovers that there is a leaky magic pipe hiding around her area. Uh, as we know, the library has taken complete control over magic like who gets it how long they get it how much they get um and there's some sort of magic pipe that filters into the air that they can adjust they could turn it down or turn it up depending on whatever it's slowly but surely oozing excess magic when it shouldn't be and sheila discovers it and with alice's help they manage to make that leak a little bigger and that's mostly to help the town which is amazing so they do that to help fix the pipes in the water in the town. We also find out that uh, the librarians are hot on Sheila's trail. You know, Alice is you know being cautious and not trying to show herself around them. And she's trying to warn Sheila away from the librarians. Uh, but they keep showing up on Sheila's doorstep. And she's like, okay, weird and strange. And she believes Alice. Alice goes into a full rant on why you should not trust the librarians. And she's like, don't worry, girl, I'm not, I'm not gonna trust them. I'll figure out what's going on. Except that um, things get crazy. So in, in typical Alice fashion, even though she is doing good, she's doing good right now, because of her, I don't wanna say interference, but because she's helping to do all of this and whatnot, it's putting Sheila even more and more squarely on the librarian's radar. Also, there's these unforeseen consequences that keep happening, like a run-in with a hedge witch. Hedge witch, there we go. It should be a hedge witch. It should be both of those, but no. So, uh, turns out the hedge witches 
in this area, uh, they fucking hate the librarians is what we find out. And, um, as soon as they, they being Alice and Sheila make the leak in that pipe a little bit bigger, everybody who does magic can feel the sudden surge and action immediately starts taking place. Like this hedge witch dude who runs like, looks like a gift shop in the town. He uh, immediately gets in contact with another head witch. This girl is blonde chick who shows up and she's all like, thank you for contacting me. And then all of a sudden we're seeing them outside of a library as we watch two other librarians go into that library. And then kablooey time, they do a spell and it blows up and they're like, that'll fucking teach them. And they walk off and we're just like, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not too out of the norm for magicians. The librarians have all the power right now. So it wouldn't be surprising that someone's like, yeah, you know, I'm not a fan of fascism. So you got to die. Not, not uncommon, but because of what goes down now, more eyes are turning to Sheila. And towards the end of the episode, we don't know what's, what Sheila's future is. We just see two librarians on her doorstep. She's walking back after a good day of fixing pipes alone because Alice had decided to stay behind and watch these kids enjoy uh, water coming out of a hydrant, which was adorable. But uh, yeah, but now Sheila is probably uh, a prisoner of the librarians. Lib, yep, librarians. So yeah, not not necessarily good. We also have Penny and Marina. Marina, in case you forgot, I want to say we last saw her episode two, maybe three. So anywho, Marina's not good. So she is a hedge witch. She's a talented one though. She's a talented hedge witch. Uh, she kind of got kid- kidnapped. Uh, and well, we just see this guy kind of call her name and she looks around and that's the end we see of, that's all we see of Marina. And in the previous episode with Penny or Penny 23, he, uh, had a very defeating conversation with Julia <laughs> about why he needed to stick around and be there for her. And, uh, I guess had gone to a park to like reflect and think deep thoughts. He also gets, uh, stabbed in the neck with a needle by some guy. Turns out. Marina and Penny are being delivered to a horomancer. And that is because they are fucking shit up magic wise where they are. So we find out, according to the horomancer, uh, magic is just all over the place. It gets out of whack when you have people who are not associated with the timeline interloping in it. And the reason he's paying attention to this is because horomancers are able to manipulate time or bend it to their will. We find out much later into their storyline. The reason he's doing all of this is because he's got a mother who's a horomancer who is frying her brain, essentially. She's doing magic basically to increase the, the science behind it so people will, A, give her the notoriety of discovering all of this, but also B, uh, so that she can figure out new and better ways to manipulate magic, especially time-related magic to her will. But the after effect of that is that she's sucking in a lot of fumes that aren't good for her. And she's slowly but surely losing her mind. And not like in a typical standard muggle way, but like in a time warping, turn your brain to mush and noodles before you die. Magician's way. So of course her son is like, yeah, that's not good. They came up with this watch because horomancy, uh, which is supposed to help. I don't know if it's necessarily meant to deflect the consequences of what this lady's doing, or if it just helps keep her together. Like she can keep, she keeps winding it 
because of what she's doing. Uh, she can forget what time she's in as well as whatever the hell she was doing. So I think by winding her watch, she's able to keep track a little bit better and stay in her presence. But everything's out of whack because we've got Marina and Penny who aren't a part of this timeline and they're messing up the time magic. So this horror master decided to have them kidnapped, brought to him, and he was gonna put them in their timeline to fix it. It was a way for him to clean up their timeline and stop the, the weird after effects that are happening with them. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't go to plan. Apparently, this horomancer, not a good study. So in timeline 23, where Penny and Marina are from, there's no magic. There's no magic. There was a whole situation with Quentin being the beast and like he completely took over things. A lot of people were dying. Uh, so when they go back to timeline 23, the magic that the horomancer was trying to use, he can't use. And Penny's able to get out of the cage, knock this dude out and steal the time box basically it looks like a time box back a fancy clock back so then get back to the other timeline which we find out is timeline 40 that's where all the gang is that we know in timeline 40 except it doesn't go well so marina in an effort to also get herself free kind of tricks penny 23 into trusting her thinking that she knows how to use the time machine that they've got of course she doesn't. So when she goes to use it and they switch or they go to the next timeline, they end up in the crucible. Basically it's full like absolute control of magic. People are being beaten in the street. Everything looks like a dystopia. It looks insane and they need to hurry up and get out of there. Uh, of course they learn a lot of things along the way. Marina drops that she needs to hurry up and get back so she can get back to her girlfriend. Apparently Marina, 23, had a girlfriend in her own timeline, but that girl broke up with her and then died. I don't know if she died, but she definitely broke up with Marina at some point. So Marina is using timeline 40, the girlfriend in that timeline, to kind of fix her mistakes and make it work, which I'm sure is going to reveal itself as another tip for Penny, because he's been in love with Julia, our Julia from timeline 40 for quite some time. Who knows? Who knows where that's going to go? But they managed to drop that. So clearly we're coming back around to that at some point. Uh, but we also get Penny understanding what the bigger story is around this horomancer. This Penny, Penny 23, is a lot more empathetic than Penny 40 ever was. So he is trying his best to figure out how they can simultaneously stay in timeline 40 and also help this horomancer out and if need be sacrifice so like end up going back to his own timeline so he can save the mother of this horomancer um but there's other plans in stake so in between him and marina fighting and him using that little time machine again he ends up in an in-between place which marina warned him could be dangerous and a side effect of using this time machine thing and not knowing what it is. So he ends up in an in-between place, which just looks like a gray room, but he comes face to face with Penny 40 and they have a whole conversation. Basically, Penny 40 now, I guess a little bit wiser after being a librarian for some time, lets him know, essentially, Penny 23 has taken over Penny 40's narrative since Penny 40 died. And he needs him to go back to timeline 40 in order for things to happen the way they need to happen. All ominous and crazy sounding. Of course, Plane 23 is like, fuck that shit. Tell me what, <laughs> what's going on. Why do I need to do have this stuff you're telling me to do? And he's just like, listen, dude, trust me. I need you to be there. 
in that timeline and when everything goes down and I'll tell you what you got to do. And I guess Penny 23 was just like, all right, I don't have anything else to lose. So why not listens to him? Oh, and he also gives him a departing message. Tell Katie, I'm sorry. And I love her. Oh, I don't know if he says that I love her. Maybe he does. The emphasis is there. So Penny 23 is like, sure. All right, whatever. Goes back to the crucible timeline, the dystopia timeline to pick up Marina. They end up going back to timeline 40. We end their story arc with Penny 23 talking to the horomancer from timeline 40 who manages to make it back to his own timeline and basically tells him to back the fuck off. He picked, I forget what you call these, but basically it is an aged over dandelion. So when you see dandelions on the street and they turn into like those blow away flowers, I call them blow away flowers. It's very scientific. But basically, they have seeds and needles that spread super fast. Uh, Kids used to make wishes on them back in my day. You know, the 1800s. So, I mean, mean, he's got one of those in in his hand. (coughs) And he's sitting there with the horomancer. Just like, yeah, so uh, I'm not going anywhere. Sorry about your mom, but uh, there's nothing I can do to stop that. Oh, side... Real quick, side story. Didn't tell tell you about the mother. So on top of the mother making her brain into Swiss cheese uh, for this bigger purpose for her studies, she also doesn't give a fuck. She's like, yeah, I might be killing myself, but I have a bigger cause. Like, this is like, they're like, but you're dying. Like, your son is trying to save you. Maybe think about your son. And she's like, fuck that kid. He knows what I was doing and why I'm doing it. He'll understand. So they were like, well, we tried. Like, like <laughs> Marina's like, basically, like, she knows exactly what she's doing. We tried. And I mean, I think that's all we can do. I agree with Marina. So unfortunately, Penny also has to agree with Marina because there, there really isn't much for them to do. Like this person that somebody's trying to save desperately doesn't want to be saved, which I'm sure is a fo- foreshadow into something else at some point. But so that's the side takeaway. Back to Penny and that horomancer's you know, whole conversation. He basically lets him know, like, dude, you're not gonna be able to save your mom. Like that's, I know you're trying. It's not gonna work. I'm not going anywhere. Marina's not going anywhere. And if you come after us, we end you. That's what's going to happen. And he's got like the little star flower poised to blow on so the seeds can spread. So this dude is staring at him and staring at this little flower he's got. And it took me two watches to really realize what the hell they were talking about. But because he plucked this thing from a different timeline, if he decides to spread the seeds of this thing and they land and they start growing in the current timeline they're in, that's also an element that's going to fuck up the time magic that the horomancer's mom is using. So he's like, whatever you do, don't blow that thing, blah, 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 blah. But unfortunately, Penny 23 has already spread 20 different, or no, he said 10. He already spread 10 of those flowers around in the timeline. So it doesn't matter because he can never get it clean enough or clean up the timeline enough uh, to get everything back on track for his mom. I'm sure this is not gonna bite him in the butt later. I'm sure. Except it totally is. They just create an enemy. So, especially after his mom passes, what, he will have nothing to lose. I didn't understand that part, but okay. And that's how we end it. That's how we end it with the Penny and Marina side story. Uh, we also had Darth Elliot, Quentin, and Julia in this episode. Real quick and short, because they didn't really do a whole lot in this. And this whole Darth Elliot storyline, it's, I understand it's the overarching storyline. And I am a fan of that setup for a TV show where you have a major big bad 
But then you have like these smaller little battles you got to do before getting back to the big bad. And that's kind of what they're doing with Elliot, except that it does feel like they're walking in place when it comes to this particular storyline. We always come back to Darth Elliot being, being, a being. He's a being that is trying to exist. He is having trouble with the fact that he can't do exactly what he wants to do. And he's constantly searching for answers. And we just keep kind of coming back to this version of the monster every time. Granted, they did try to kick it up a notch in this episode. So now the monster is fully drinking alcohol, completely abusing it, and also trying to move on to drugs, get into harder stuff. He has a whole confrontation with Quentin when he's like, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want. And if his body dies, I'll just find another one. And Quentin's all like, no, 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 no. And get a bunch of stone blood on my back for you to just waste my friend's body away. The whole point of me keeping you here and trying to help you so I can save my friend. So he does a whole stand up to to this monster. This monster's kind of drunk. So I think they're trying to show us that the bond between the monster and Quentin is starting to grow. But all I really took from that back and forth was that the monster is past caring about anything other than this body, you know, you know, anyhow, anyhow. So that's happening. But in the process of all of that, we also got a random moment with a mummy when it came to these three. So they were, they're looking, they're trying to decipher hieroglyphs and they know it's related to Egyptian hieroglyphics, but it might be something a little bit earlier. And when they finally discover the language, they find out, A, it's a dead language, meaning they don't have anything to translate for this language. So the monster gets an idea and it's like, well, why don't we just ask somebody from that time, takes him to what I'm assuming is a museum basement, touches our sarcophagus, wakes up a mummy, gets the mummy to translate what's going on. And we find out that there's more pieces uh, for the monster fine in a tomb for a dead God. And then they just awkwardly leave the mummy. It was a nice ha ha moment for the show. It was just oddly placed to me. And very weird. But it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be weird. And that was pretty much it. And that was pretty much it for that arc. Not a whole lot else happening. Not much else happening on the Julia Goddess front. That's, that was it. Moving on. So we also had a follow-up with the Margot and Josh situation. In just the previous episode, they got down uh, to save Josh. Josh was going mad from the um, the something. I don't remember what it's called, but basically he was going full werewolf, the quickening. That's what it's called. He was going insane for the quickening. Essentially, when you are L positive, you have your body or the disease or whatever this ailment is forces you either to infect somebody else to to keep spreading the disease to ensure the survival of this particular disease or kill somebody insanely. So... Josh didn't want to do either in the previous episode. He wasn't down for rape. Good for you, Josh. Also wasn't down for murder. Double A plus. Um, but so Margot was like, listen, since you won't let me help you murder someone, let's get down. I care about you as my friend. The Josh Margot thing for some people seems to have come out of nowhere. I kind of got it. I mean, she was missing Elliot. Josh has proven himself to actually be a pretty good friend to everybody. And she treated him like, she she treated him like shit in the previous episode prior to that. So 
them getting down and her saving him as a friend made sense to me. We come into this episode and pick up right where everything left off. Margot's back in Fillory, trying to figure out what's going on in her birthright. Find out the animals can't talk. She's trying to figure out how to get them to talk. We had a nice little moment where her and Josh had to work together. They're trying to woo a leader, a, the queen from another kingdom. Uh, they potentially have uh, something to work as an antidote for all of this speechless talking animals that are happening there. But uh, this lady has some definite feels about Margot. She kind of feels like Margot is a bitch and she is. Uh, she also kind of <laughs> feels like Margot looks down on her kingdom and couldn't be bothered to actually learn about them. And she's also right on that account. So we have Josh who's got a, a softer touch for those things. He is like a master, uh, inter- I don't wanna say entertainer, but like host. He's a master host when it comes to welcoming people, making them feel at home, making sure that everybody's having a good time. He's good at that. And he's kind of teaching Margot how to do that. He also teaches Margot how to read people based on their reactions to things that are being served to them. The food they choose, wine pairings, all of that leads into their own personalities, which was cool, but definitely outside of Margot's realm entirely. There's a whole moment there where Margot is killing it. Like she's taking all of Josh's lessons to heart. She's putting them to good use. And he lets it slip that she is out Elliotting, out Elliotting Elliot. That's a, a phrase. She doesn't like that. She is definitely still dealing with the loss of her soulmate, the loss of her soulmate. He's more than her best friend. He's more than family to her. And he's gone to her knowledge. To her knowledge, he is dead and gone. So any mention, any any thought about him is sending her over the edge. And she immediately stops doing the good work that she's doing and goes full Margot, which ends up working in her favor though. Like it scares the shit out of this queen so they can get the antidote if they need. She basically bullies her into it. And then she has a full blowout fight with Josh right afterwards. She lets him have it for mentioning Elliot in the first place. And Josh, thankfully, also lets her have it. Like they go back and forth and he's like, listen, bitch, like, <laughs> like, okay, not as harshly, but essentially, listen, bitch, I understand you miss him. I understand you miss him. But girl, we all got to move on. We all have other things that we got to deal with in the immediate and you need to fucking get over yourself. He also let it slip that he wanted to be her boyfriend, which I am, that I am confused about. There was a whole moment when they were in that dungeon jail cell where he was like, I understand that this is not going to be a thing thing we're gonna just be cool but he's also getting getting the feelings for margo and he basically lets her tell her he's like you're let her tell her lets her have it and it's just like listen i really like you and i was definitely trying to be more than friends with you but this it's never gonna work you know whether you want to admit it or not i do know you but clearly this is where everything's got to end so he gets all mad she's still kind of mad and that's kind of where we live, leave things with them. And that's pretty much it for the episode. It's just a lot of everybody like paired off, doing crazy stuff, slowly moving the story forward. I'm very interested to see what this means for Alice in particular, now that she's in Modesto and now that Sheila presumably is with the librarians. Alice is still protected. She did a spell that 
the off the author guy told her about on how to cloak her book to make it look like she's in one place when she's not so she can't be tracked so to a degree she has some safety but she knows it's a matter of time before they figure out everything so I'm interested to see where that's going to go. I'm interested to see also how that's going to tie into the Darth Elliot storyline, which seems to be the main overall storyline. We still really haven't had like a standalone Quentin only episode, which we usually get at some point. We had kind of had it when they first came back, but it was split up with other storylines. I'm also waiting to see when that's going to drop. I don't know. But we did get to see Penny 40 again, which was always nice. I'm interested to see if anybody else is going to be able to see Penny 40 moving into the future. Who knows? But uh, that's going to bring us into the following episode, The Side Effects. Because holy cow, Side Effects. So in The Side Effects, which to me went a lot faster, we break it up into Penny giving a lesson to what he thinks is a new librarian. And that sh- that stuff was hilarious, to be honest. Like immediately into it, he basically calls out the privilege that this white guy has when, he, oh, and when he's shelving books. Uh, Penny basically is telling him that um, he needs to be more careful shelving these books. Apparently he's just shelving them willy-nilly and not really pay attention to anything. And he calls out... What's he call it? He says, uh, you're suffering from white male protagonism. Protagonism. Essentially, this kid is trying, he kind of comes off as somebody who doesn't care about the other books that are happening, like in the stories or whatever. He, uh, Penny basically told him to read his friend's books for some reason. I'm not sure why. I don't know if that helps with shelving or what, but he told him to read it. But this kid didn't really want to. He said he skimmed it because he didn't really care about anything. Uh, and, that, and Penny rightfully points out it's because you don't think anybody represents you. So I need you to read everything. I need you to read everything. And then he gets a little deeper and he's like, you know, what? Where would you shelve these books and whatnot? And essentially the kid says that these are all side characters. So it shouldn't matter where he wants to <laughs> shelve these books. And Penny launches into a story about how you need to see the bigger picture. How even if you want to call them side characters. They still bring a lot to the story. And if you dismiss them, you're going to miss entire points and plots to the story. And then we break it down. We talk about what's going on uh, with Zelda, with Katie, and with Finn. Finn is the quickest. So Finn, her storyline, we're picking up right with Margot coming back. Margot seeing her birthright as a lizard and then finding out none of the animals are talking. Immediately, Finn starts having these prophetic dreams. So she is dreaming about things in the future before they come to pass, wakes up and is seeing it happen in her real time. And she's like, what is going on? She talks to Josh about this. She shows up in his pantry after dreaming that his souffle is going to collapse. Hysterical. And Josh basically tells her, listen, next time we have one of these dreams, try to lose a dream. So if you feel yourself dreaming and you, you know, what kind of want to explore your dream a little bit, He tells her a trick about sticking her finger through her hand and that's how she'll know it's a dream and then she can kind of explore her space a little bit. She does it. Um, Next dream she has, she kind of pieces together that this might be a dream. Does the finger trick. Takes some time to look around, to explore things. It pauses everything in her dream except for like this figure in a green cloak that immediately takes off. 
She's trying to run after this figure, try to get some answers, never catches up to the figure, ends up waking up. But not without another prophecy dream. So in that particular dream, Margot, Josh, and I don't know who this other guy is. The guy who who is basically a translator for the sloth. They are trying to work on an antidote to get the lizard to talk. And when they put the antidote on the lizard, flambe, instant fire. So she's ma- she manages to warn them off. Don't try to kill her birth. Don't kill Margot's birthright. Let's stave off the antidote situation. Explains her prophetic dreams. Decides she's going to go find this green cloaked figure and see what's going on. That's it. That was the end of Finn's story. Um, For Katie, Katie's story was definitely a lot more interesting. So we pick up with Katie right after everything that went down in Marina's apartment. And after she picked up Marina's apartment, we find out not only did she get in Marina's apartment, but she also got Marina's rent. She has to pay the rent for the place that they're in. Uh, they get certain protections in this apartment that she doesn't want to let go of. Unfortunately, we find out that her landlord is Baba Yaga, which is terrifying. Baba Yaga is a slavic folklore witch. Uh, she eats people. She eats people. She's known for eating children. Uh, she's also, I want to say, she, like, she makes a deal and then she eats them. So I'm not even sure if the deal portion is part of it. But she definitely eats children. She's no one to mess around with. She's very powerful. And she lets Katie know uh, in no short terms, either you go get my rent or I kill you. Okay. Her rent is also not money. She's going to find like these items and potential liquids. It is very random. Kind of sends her on a goose chase of a hunt. But we get to see some familiar faces. We run into Pete. Pete is a character that we saw in the very first season. He's part of the Hedge Witches. He was Marina's like right hand. He was really gross with Julia. Um, <laughs> but here he is. Now he is known as the lovely lady, which apparently is a term for something. I don't know if it's a traitor term or what, but he's kind of a big deal in the Hedge Witch realm. He took over the title from somebody and now he feels like he's doing big business. Uh, he strikes a deal with Katie. Katie will introduce him to Bobby Yaga if he helps her find these items for her rent. In the process of finding these items, Katie starts picking up on something that's happening with a lot of the hedge witches. A, they're getting sick. B, it's something connected to the Dewey coins that they're carrying. If we don't remember, the Dewey coins help them do more magic than what they're allotted by the library. So if you have a Dewey, it helps give you a little bit more magic to play around with. I don't know if it's unlimited. I don't think it's unlimited, but it's powerful. However, we find out that there is a tracking spell on these Deweys. And depending on whatever spells they have, the hedges are using to help protect themselves, it's not meshing well with the spell, the tracking spell on the the coins. And it's slowly poisoning them and then eventually killing them. So Katie basically frames it to sound like this is a, purposeful move by the librarians to control them. She she says that she understands that this might be a side effect, but the fact that they are tracking these coins the way they are, she says it's only a matter of time before they weaponize something. So, you know, I, I don't even know if it was necessarily a warning of like, be careful or like you need to do something about this. Kitty tries to like peel it back. There was a whole situation with a familiar looking hedge witch. There's a blonde hedge witch that showed up in this episode that was in episode six. 
we find out the reason she blew up that library. It's because her boyfriend was carrying a Dewey that slowly poisoned him and then killed him. And this blonde witch ain't fucking around. She's like, we need to take the fight to the librarians. Katie's like, you need to slow your roll. <laughs> you don't know what you're messing with. Let's regroup. Let's try like, let's try to like take this a step at a time. We don't need to immediately result to fighting. Of course, that doesn't get listened to because we know what happened. So uh, Katie accidentally started a rebellion with the hedge, which is against librarians, essentially was her storyline. So that's definitely gonna have ramifications and after effects. And this all came from Katie wanting to find another purpose. Like she was hung up on her detective persona when they were hidden as other people. She like went back to her detective's office to find all these open cases that you know were left unfinished because she's no longer that detective and was trying to like help close them which then led her to the rent, which then led her to this insane war that she's about to start. So, um, Katie, welcome back, I guess. I mean, holy shit. So that's happening. But the biggest story for me was Zelda's. So Zelda is the head head librarian and she has quite the story to her. We've, we've hung around with Zelda for a minute. She's, I wanna say we were introduced to her in season one when the library was still a mystery. She very much gives you vintage 19, like 50s, 60s vibes. Her clothes are fantastic. I like them. And her glasses and the way she just holds her hands akimbo. Her, she keeps her arms in like a graceful akimbo when she's like walking down hallways or like down like little alleys. She's adorable. We pick up with her right after Alice's escape. Uh, she's in trouble. It was her idea to try to imprison Alice at the library. So now the other, I guess, head librarians? I don't know who these people are, but they're people of authority. So the other authority people kind of feel like this is your fault. <laughs> we need to go, we need to find out if Alice is a threat. If Alice is a threat, we need to end her. Okay, where's her book? We find out the book is still being written, so they can't do anything immediately. They have to wait for that to be finished. But in the meanwhile, Zelda can look into more about what Alice could be doing. So once we find out that the book is finished, Zelda looks it over and thinks it's kind of off. Like when they read the ending for her, it's like Alice decides to go to Seattle and then she settles down with a cat and that's the end. And she's like, that is strange, but she doesn't point it out to the other authority librarians. So they're like, okay, well, case closed. She's not a threat. Cool, we're gonna keep it moving. How about you go down to Seattle, make sure she's there and we'll call it a day. And she's like, okay. I'll go do that. Heads out to Seattle. Checks in on where Alice is supposed to be working. She's supposed to become a barista after she settles down with this cat. Goes to the brewery um, where she's supposed to be working at. Alice isn't there. So she quickly pieces together. Alice did something to cloak her book. But she's let the cat out of the bag. Um, a lot of cat references. She uh, comes back out and it's like, yep, she's there. We're fine. We're good. Let's go. She heads back to the library. And she starts hearing and seeing things. She keeps hearing her daughter, Harriet, who last season, season before then, had tried to lead a coup. So she's got this rebellious daughter who feels like magic should be for everyone and not controlled by the library, which leads to like a moral ethics conundrum. 
of like, should you? Because essentially the argument was magic can't be used irresponsibly. So if we let everybody have magic, chaos will ensue. Versus if we control magic, then we can stave off the insanity that could come from people who are just free will and Dylan with all this magic. On paper, seems cut and dry. In reality, they're kind of headed towards the same outcome, whether it was open to everybody or completely closed off. So I guess Zelda is kind of feeling that. Plus her daughter's trapped in a mirror dimension. So her daughter had used mirrors through a traveler to get into the library. There's this whole trick where a traveler has to use their blood and continue to draw on this mirror to keep the doorways open so you can go from one place to another using the mirrors to travel. If you get stuck in between, so say you go and travel through a mirror and then that mirror breaks, you're trapped in like this alternate world where everything is off. When they go to get Harriet, she, she gets the traveler that the librarian is controlling, uh, who also trapped Harriet to help her. When they make it into like this al alternate library, it's bizarre and probably my favorite part of the entire episode everything's weird. Like the portrait that was in her office, instead of it being like a face that we can see, it's the back of her head. It's super creepy from like start to finish. And as, as Zelda is exploring this alternate library, trying to find Harriet, uh, she meets up with her daughter and they have a whole conversation and she's signing to her daughter about how she misses her and is so sorry she got trapped. And she slowly but surely realizes she is not talking to Harriet. And then the image disappears and she looks around her and there are monster Harriets everywhere. Creepy cracked faces, slit mouths. It looks like a Hellraiser version of being trapped in a mirror. It was awesome. It looked insane. And I kind of hope we return to that because now I have even more questions. They don't, she, Zelda gets out of there quick. She's not trying to deal with these monster Harriets. Meets up with a traveler again who got stabbed by another monster Harriet. And they get out, they get out of that alternate library. But I kind of hope we go back to that at some point to find out what deities live in this alternate space like this. Like it's, they're demonic, which makes me kind of want to know what more about them. So anyway, they get out of town. She meets up with the Dean at Breakbills and kind of asked him for his help to find Alice. She's like, we need to find Alice. Uh, I don't even think it's necessarily to protect Alice so much as it is to trying to clean up the mess that she's made uh, with everything that's going on. She also gets the head up, heads up that her Dewey coins, the coins that she made to with the trackers on them to try to keep track of people who are using them and when and what and why is having a side effect of poisoning and killing Hedgewitches. Uh, because the magic she put on that coin is interfering with the magic that they're using to protect themselves. And he's like, great find. Like like, like how a scientist accidentally finds a cure for uh, bacteria. He's like, brilliant. And you know, we can double down on this later to use it as a weapon if we need be, good job. And she's like, oh no. So I think she can go, she's go she went back to Dean Fogg and tried to get Alice in as well to help with the upcoming war that's going definitely going to go down. That is definitely going to happen with the library versus everybody else who wants to use magic. So, more than likely happening. 
So we get all of that. And then we get back to Penny, who has shared all this information with the new hire and is like, and this is why we need to treat things with respect. Turns out the new hire isn't a new hire. He is somebody who is testing Penny to find out whether or not he can move up in the ranks of whatever they are doing in the underworld version of the library. So Penny's like, okay. <laughs> so he gets the promotion and we end up on another cliffhanger. We see Penny meeting with somebody at an elevator or a room. It's just, and he says, oh, well, I guess welcome to the underworld. Boom, boom. So, I mean, I liked having the side effect episode. It was cool. It was nice to see what was going on there. Um, But, eh. I mean, it was it was nice getting further information to make a fuller picture for this season. But I don't know. It feels like we spent a lot of time in the sidebar for things to be rushed towards the end. Magicians isn't a long series. It's not a season that's got like 20 some odd episodes. I think we get 10, maybe 11. And we're at seven, so... We need to start wrapping things up. But otherwise, not a bad episode. So not a bad episode. Interested to see where else we're going to go. Interested to see how much more we're going to get of Penny 40. Especially since he's been in two episodes back to back now. And what that means. Mm. We'll find out. So another episode of Magicians will be coming up. And I'll be recapping that. And I'll be moving on to Doom Patrol right after this. Alright, let's move right on into Doom Patrol. I'm going to be talking about episodes 3 and 4. We're talking about Puppet Patrol and Cult Patrol. And these all sound like Paw Patrol. I'm sure it's a matter of time before we get there. So, And if you don't know what Paw Patrol is, bless you. May you be saved from that for quite some time. I'm not even sure why I know what Paw Patrol is. I don't have little ones. but um, But I know of it. I know of it. So anyway... On to Doom Patrol, Puppet Patrol. Really quick, really simple. These episodes are pretty short. They're, I want to say about 30-ish minutes that they run. I still don't understand why we can't just binge the entire season. But anyway, I will say so far, Doom Patrol is turning out to be a better watch of a series for me than Titans was. Titans, Again, I felt like had a lot of promise. It had its moments where it seemed like, all right, we're doing a pretty decent job. And then it would just veer away entirely. And you're like, what does this have to do with the main story? Why are we here? Who cares about Raven? So that being said, Doom Patrol keeps the weird and they keep up in the ante on the weird. I feel like they're like Legends of Tomorrow where they're just like, anything goes. Just see what you can fit in here. Which is either going to work out really well or come out really clunky. But Puppet Patrol is doing pretty good. So the whole basis of Puppet Patrol is that the gang decides with Cyborg kind of forcing their hand, they need to go and do something more in order to get the chief back, basically. Uh, they figure out that nobody has a connection to Von Fuchs. And Von Fuchs is in Paraguay. He is an ex-Nazi scientist who went into hiding, a uh, history brief for you, a lot of former Nazis hid in South America. They all went to, I don't say all, but a lot of them went to Argentina. So Paraguay, not that big of a difference. 
So they head to Paraguay. They meet up with this uh, meta hopeful, this guy named Steve, who's like, ooh, are you also trying to get, you know, the full no body treatment? Because that's mad expensive. I'm just hoping to get magnetic feet. He's adorable. He's played by Alec Mappa, who is a favorite of mine. I got really excited when I saw his face. So they're waiting there. They make their way into Von Fuchs. Um, It looks like a twisted Disneyland, but all based around Von Fuchs. They have to sit for orientation, which apparently involves a three-hour puppet show explaining the origins of (laughs) Von Fuchs. And they they have to watch it. Alec Mappa's character, Steve, takes it very seriously, and he is ooing and aahing and clapping and cheering at the appropriate times. But basically, through these puppets, we find out that nobody used to run or was a part of the Brotherhood of Evil back in the 30s. He was on the run. He needed something that was going to give him more ability so that he could stay, you know, free and not have to go to jail. And went in for the full experiment that Von Fuchs was running uh, with meta abilities. Also, his specialty as a Nazi. I'm sure lots of people died. Uh, Of course, the experiment goes off, but not necessarily off with like to according to plan not necessarily but it does create mr nobody and we find out he can manipulate yeah but basically what we learned in the previous episodes homeboy can manipulate reality existentially and insanely so he was doing that but we also find out what his tie is to chief so it turns out chief was chasing this dude down uh, when he was a human and still part of the brotherhood of evil and managed to track him down to Von Fuchs' lair and shot at the machinery that was creating Mr. Nobody and was a part of the process to make most Mr. Nobody Mr. Nobody. It's also insinuated that this is how Chief ended up in the wheelchair. Explosion was huge. Uh, it also hurt Von Fuchs enough that he's now going to stay in a crazy looking iron lung thing that is cranked by a controlled man in a full... German outfit. They have a lot of these, he has a lot of these like side characters that I wasn't sure what they were. We know he controls them. I don't know if they are robots or if they're humans or what, but they all look like Von Trapp children. So a lot of those jokes were flying. Um, But yeah, so the gang's all in Paraguay or not all of the gang. It was Jane, uh, Negative Man, and Cliff, who managed to get there. The early part of the show sets up how reluctant they are to be any kind of like proactive superhero team. <laughs> like Cyborg is trying his best to kind of whip them into shape, but uh, his expectations of the group are a little too high for what he's dealing with. He feels like he can step in, take control, give them orders, and they're just going to follow. And that's not what they do at all. You've got Cliff who's mocking him at like every turn. You got Jane who's doing her own thing. You got Rita who doesn't want to do anything. She wants to stay back at the mansion. She's not trying to be there. And you've got Larry who is going through it. He is having an emotional breakdown. So um, there's a whole point in there where they had stopped at a rest stop to, you know, get some rest, regroup, but they can't get Rita out of the bathroom. Rita is also having her own meltdown. She, she can't control her body, which is an ongoing thing for poor Rita. She, after being exposed to whatever that liquid was in Africa, which they just say Africa, um, she, she, um, she turns into a blob. She's supposed to be a last woman, but late, she just really shows herself to be a blob. Like when, if she can't focus, and if, especially if she gets very 
frustrated or upset. Her leg expands and she slowly but surely turns into that huge blob we saw a couple episodes back. So she is freaking out. She's trying to regain control of her body, but it's taking her a long time and she won't get out of the bathroom. Jane gets frustrated. She grabs Cliff. She grabs Larry. One of her personalities takes over and teleports them to Paraguay, leaving Vic and Rita alone at the motel. Rightfully, Cliff and Larry are like, you could teleport us? This whole time? And Jane goes on and on about how it's not her. It's another personality and she can't control them. She just lets them be. Very like free range parenting, I feel. Like she's like, you know, it's not up to me, um, you know, to stop these decisions. I respect their decision making process. Like that's very much what I'm getting from Jane. So they go to Von Fuchs. They get that backstory. And then they kind of get separated. We got Cliff and trainer and Larry in one room talking to the a Von Trapp lady. We've got Jane in another room talking to Von Trapp lady and they're trying to get a meeting with Von Fuchs. Jane is the only one who's successful in getting that meeting with Von Fuchs. In the Jane column, she basically faces off with him, tells him he know, she knows about the chief. Uh, he's very interested in her abilities and the fact that she houses 64 different personalities, all with meta ability. He also kind of throws in her face that this like lack of control that she keeps saying that she has, like how she just lets her her beings be, isn't really helpful. Like it doesn't really amount to anything because she's not the one doing anything. She has no control over what her personalities are doing. And he even questions as to whether or not Jane is the core personality in the first place. We get a very kick-ass fight scene that happens. Uh, apparently Jane pushes the, the limit too far. And a bunch of Von Trapp children pop up out of nowhere, all controlled by Von Fuchs, and they go after Cliff and Jane. At this time, Larry has wandered off and has gone into a chamber to get into deep thought. I will get back to Larry in a second. The fight that sequence that goes down with Jane facing Von Trapp children, or I should say Von Fuchs children, and Cliff facing Von Fuchs children, very mirroring. They're both very violent. The different personalities are coming out of Jane. Uh, we get Hammerhead, we get a couple other people. She's got a personality, and I'm sure they say the name of this personality. I just don't know what it is. But it gets a silver mouth, like from that movie that I now have no idea what it's called. Mad Max. Yes, the Mad Max movie, where they spray silver in their mouths and they talk about how they're going to Valhalla. She's got a silver mouth, but when her when this personality speaks, you literally see the physicality of those words pop out and then she can use them like daggers and they break into anything. And she uses those to kill Von Fuchs. And even as dude is dying, he gets there one more time by saying that even this pathetic win that she managed to get from them, not really hers. Who knows who is it, who it is and then dies, but it's enough to make her question things. Interesting. And then poor Cliff, we get a whole moment uh, where before they left the mansion, he came across a phone number on a post-it that supposedly is his daughter's phone number and him playing around with the idea of calling his daughter, but never really going through with it. And then when the fight goes down and he is facing off against these Von Trapp puppet people or uh, Von Fuke puppet people, he goes ham. He's ripping people from their torsos. He is like, he just goes full murdery. He's got blood all over him by the end of everything. He kind of went into a black rage 
there was a lot happening for poor Cliff. There's a lot going on. But he, when he finally comes to, like, regains with the seriousness of the situation he's in, realizes, like, massacre. Like, <laughs> like monster level massacre. What I don't get, though, is when Jane shows up to, like, get him, uh, his instant reaction is thinking it's another Von Fuke child or puppet or whatever this thing is. They're not actually children. I keep saying children. They're grown adults fighting him. Um, he like sideswipes her that she easily ducks and ditches, but then sees the carnage that he has left behind and gives him a look like, oh, you're a monster. And he's like, come on, let's go. And he's like, oh, okay. Like he follows her. I didn't understand this moment of her like disappointment, I guess. And I guess almost like a feeling of betrayal that pops up because she too went on a murderous, violent rampage against these same puppets. So I don't understand what makes her fighting different than Cliff's, but sure. So that happens. Uh, and then catching up with Larry, he has gone into one of the, I don't even know what they call them. It's not necessarily a room, but it's one of the devices, like the housing of a device that gave Mr. Nobody his powers. Larry wanders into it and we spend most of his portion of the episode deep in emotional thought. He's remembering his past. He's in a desperation to separate himself from this negative being that's inhabiting his body, like at all costs. And in this little room with the machine going, he's able, A, to keep consciousness and see the negative being and B, kind of like relive his choices from his previous life. Larry has always been two people. And we effectively see there's the Larry trainer that is married to a woman and has kids. And then there's a the Larry trainer who's in a full on homosexual relationship with who I thought was like a battle buddy, like somebody else who was in his squadron, who kind of is, but more than, but more than that, he's his handler. He's the guy that helps set him up for his test flights, prepares him and whatnot. And they got close that way. We see in his memories that this guy wanted more of a life with Larry. And Larry was like, no, no, we can't do that. Let's keep pretending. Let's do that. Like this is healthier. It's not. We also see Larry's poor wife fully aware that her husband likes men, likes men. Of course it is 1950 though. So like there's a back and forth, but for her, it feels like she's done. Like she's like, I care about you, Larry. We do have the kids but it is not worth it for us to both not be happy in a marriage that isn't working. Pretty plain and simple. She lets it fly that he's had other dalliances with other guys. He's always called it like hanging out with the guys after work, but she knows better. And she's kind of like done. She's like, this needs to be done. Larry's like quick to like assage her fears. He's like, no, 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 we're gonna make this work. You mean so much to me. Blah, 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 gets back in the plane, has his accident, and we get to see what happened to Larry right after the accident. So he walked away from the accident, mind you, burnt beyond recognition. The makeup they did, the makeup they did, get, definitely gave you the emphasis that this was about a burn victim. I don't necessarily know how tr true to that they were, because there's some defining features on this guy that I feel would not be there if your whole body was in flames. But anyway, 
nitpicky. So the whole point is we see that Larry is held up in the hospital and nurses and doctors start dropping like flies because he's radioactive. We find out he is mad radioactive. He is killing people that touch him. So you got people in full hazmat suits going to get him from this hospital. And then they put him in like, a, I guess, a lead room so that he can't, eat, you know, leak out radiation to unknown poor people. And the only way he can communicate with people outside of his room is through like this intercom that's in his room. He's in a massive amount of pain. He's alone. His wife comes to find him. Oh, uh, well, I guess to talk to him. And it's not the conversation he wants at all. Like, he's kind of grateful that she's there. But she basically lets him know, like, yeah, I'm glad you survived. But we need to be done. And after this, when you get out, you're not coming back home. You are going to figure out what's going to work for your life. And I'm going to figure out what's going on with mine. Peace him out. Rolls out. He's in tears. He's sad. He didn't want that to end. His beautiful boyfriend comes. To wish him well. He's there with the other guys. Like we're all here, right? So we're here to support you. Larry is broken and he wants that dual world still. He wants to be able to have his wife with all of whatever society's expectations are with that and then have this dude on the side. Like that's, he was good with that apparently. No one else is good with that. So now that his only option is the boyfriend, he doesn't want the boyfriend either. He's like, listen, no. Life is already gonna be too hard. If I can't have my wife and you, I don't want anybody, basically. And tells the boyfriend to go away too. But this also cements the fact that uh, Larry sucks. Larry sucks. Like that's basically what we get out of it. Jane tells him he's an OCD douchebag. Accurate, accurate. He doesn't know what the fuck he wants. He's constantly fighting himself in the first place, but trying to place that blame on this negative energy that's kind of trapped with him, which leads us into the next episode. So after all that goes down and they get the information about Von Fuchs, the gang heads back to the hotel. There was a, a little moment between Rita and Cyborg. It wasn't super huge though. It was mostly Rita ranting and raving about how they aren't heroes yet again. Uh, but also showing us more about how she really doubts herself and her ability and also isn't really trying to find answers that she feels are going to be bad. She admits to Cyborg she's scared to go and search for the chief because she's scared there's nothing to find. She's scared like he's already gone and she doesn't want to confront that. If, if she can live in denial for a little bit longer, that is her other superpower. She's great at that. She's great at living in denial. So we've seen in the other episodes, she continues to dress like a 1950s starlet. When they went into town, I want to say in the first episode, second episode, she was still trying to relive the glory days of her past. Denial works for her. So she's like, I understand why we can't just all be here. And Cyborg, meanwhile, is like full. I guess they're trying to show that he's got his own problems. Like he's trying to be his own man, but he can't really be his own man because he's completely dependent on Star Labs and his father. So the duality of that, of him trying to do the right thing and be his own person, but also not struggle and have to do things too hard of a way. I didn't really care. It was boring. Moving on. So we move into the next episode where we pick up right where they all left off. Team meets back again from the trip to Paraguay and getting answers. And uh, we find out Jane is pissed at Cliff. Jane is uh, all 
also her personalities are like flipping like crazy right now. So we had Jane and then all of a sudden we had Baby Doll. Baby Doll is my favorite personality. She's the one that acts like a little kid. She's super happy, super positive all the time. There's a whole moment where Cliff is having a dream about being with his daughter. And when he wakes up, it's Baby Doll that's next to him instead of the daughter in his dream. And then when uh, Baby Doll wakes up, we find out it's not Baby Doll anymore. It's Hammerhead now that's inhabiting Jane's body. And she is pissed. And she immediately is disgusted and walks away and yells at Cliff. And Cliff's like, what the hell is happening right now? And then we get Larry, who, I don't don't know if the negative energy walked his body into this room or what, but he kind of wakes up to a tape of him and the chief talking. And, uh, and we see that the reason that tape is on is because the negative energy left it on. And of course, when he, when Larry comes to, he immediately turns it all off and it's like, what the hell is happening? We also get a departure from the chief storyline. We get introduced to a chaos magician who looks like a good value, um, Constantine. And it turns out he is a good value Constantine. <laughs> His name is Willoughby Kipling. Um, according to the comics, apparently, after I did some research, because I was like, what is this dude? He, the the writers of Doom Patrol didn't get permission to use Constantine in their work the way they wanted to. So they created a good value version. Welcome, chaos agent. Welcome. So it's played by the same guy who's in a lot of Supernatural. He played, oh, what is his name? I can't even remember, but he played the Demon King I don't even remember. Crowley. There it is. I was going to say Caster. That's not it. Crowley. He played a demon Crowley in a lot of the supernatural shows. The guy is a great actor and he brings a lot of funny into this episode. I just don't understand why we're departing from the search for the chief at all in this episode. But, uh, but yeah, episode four, Colt Patrol gets introduced. Uh, basically, when we meet Willoughby Kipling, he is muttering to himself in a hotel room uh, about the end of time, essentially. There is a whole prophecy that's happening um, in which a living book is going to bring about the end of days, essentially. We see this kid, we see this baby uh, being sung to by two parents. They've got these party hats on that have a single eye on it and they give it a cake. They give the baby a cake that has a single eye on it. And we see this repeat itself as the kid starts to get older and it culminates to when the kid's 18. This kid is continuously shirtless and more and more writing keeps appearing on his body. Looks like very strange marker tattoos. And then towards the, the um, or yeah, after the kid blows out the candles on his 18th birthday cake, the mother wanders off to go get more plates and the father Warns the kid to run, basically. He's like, we keep telling you that you're going to be the savior. You're actually going to be the ender. You need to run. Mother comes back, finds out what's happening, kills the father on the spot, chases her son up the stairs. Which leads us to Willoughby Kipling in his motel room where he is muttering to himself. He gets attacked by these very creepy look like, what is it called? I forget the game. But basically, uh, they look like crazy nuns. They're called the the nuns of the razor or something insane. They're evil looking and they're trying to kill him. And he uses a, what looks like a kid's book to ward them away. Basically, he says a spell. It gets them to leave. 
Oh, what was the name of this book, though? I actually have notes. Clearly not organized, but I have them. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the book is called Who Killed Who Killed Cock Robin? It's so bizarre. And we get a whole close-up of it. And then later, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't even lead to anything, which I guess is part of his title. He is a chaos magician, so it wouldn't necessarily need to mean anything. Bizarreness. So essentially, he gets introduced and we get into a whole other story. A whole, so the, the whole search for the chief is now on hold. Now the gang has to get together to stop the end of the world. They uh, have to protect this kid, essentially. So Kipling shows up at the mansion looking for chief. Of course, chief is not there. He lets the gang know what's going on. He opens up a doorway so the gang can go get the kid. They grab the kid. Um, close up the door before the mom can come. And then Kipling decides, and we're going to just murder the kid. And this is how we're going to save the world from being destroyed. And of course, they're like, no, 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 we're not killing any kids. <laughs> That's not happening. <laughs> we need to find another way. Uh, Kipling tells them they need to close the gate to Nuremberg. We get introduced to a city called Nuremberg. It's apparently it's a German town somewhere uh, where these people are celebrating the what they called it they didn't call it a destructor they call it a decreator basically and it's a being with one eye that's supposed to bring about the end of the world uh so their whole plan is to close the gates to Nuremberg so nobody else can come out to get this kid and read him and create the end of the world and then the team breaks up we've got cliff and jane going to Nuremberg, or well event they end up in Nuremberg, but going to close the gate the gate is a person, just like how the book they've got to read is a person. Is that kid? The gate is a priest in Spain, somewhere, a Spanish priest somewhere, whose hands light up. He's got a light stigmata happening, but they work as a gate to get you in to Nuremberg, Nuremberg, also a place, but not in the show, to get you into Nuremberg. They're supposed to sew his hands shut so that he can't open the gate anymore. Except when they get there, they get to the church. They're at a church to get this priest. Jane gets, or Hammerhead, I guess, because Hammerhead is taking over the entire body. Hammerhead gets triggered in a major way and is not effective. And they don't get to close the gate. Instead, they go through the gate and they end up in Nuremberg. We also see another personality show up. A personality called Penny Farthing, who's deeply apologetic about everything and is not aggressive at all. So when they get cornered by a very strange cloaked being, Penny Farthing is worthless. She doesn't help at all. But we get more backstory. So apparently the people of Nuremberg and this cult, this order of insanity um they are oh the cult of the unwritten book is what they're called they are essentially they've been working for years 18 years to be exact to make this kid the living book so they can read from him and bring about the end of the world um yeah that's what they were trying to do except like the husband who was also a counterpart to this at the last minute changed his mind and that's why now they gotta chase after this kid uh we also see 
Thank you. We also see um, these, the, the leaders, I guess, of Nuremheim kind of call out Cliff and Jane while they're there. Like they point out that Cliff is dealing with all that he's lost and not really handling it well and also not really recognizing himself for who he is right now in his current present time. And then the same thing for Jane. We find out Jane's core personality isn't even Jane. It's somebody named Kay, who's a little girl. So, and they've been not so heavy, well, super heavily hinting, basically straight out telling us something terrible happened in Jane's childhood. We also know it resulted in her being experimented on by a bunch of scientists, which is why apparently she's got these personalities that have meta abilities. But something happened to her. The hint is that it was sexually abusive in nature that resulted in her having these fragmented personalities around her. That's really all we get on their side. We also find out that Nuremheim is a blue city in a globe that's sitting in the mansion. There's that. We also get, uh, we also got a nice moment with Rita and the kid. So Rita is going through it per usual. She's just very much like, we don't need this. We don't need to do all this. I don't see the point of us doing all this. Why do we have to go and stop the world from ending? And you got Cyborg telling her, we get it. Basically, Cyborg is the voice of all of us. He's like, we get it. You don't want to do this. Great. You can leave. Everybody else who wants to stay can stay. And we'll figure out what we got to do. Unfortunate for Rita, everybody else is on board to figure out how to save the world. Including her buddy, who usually also stays out of things. Larry Trainer. He's like, yeah, I, yeah, I do. I kind of want to help. He's like, <laughs> so Rita is, Rita is just pouting and all over the place and complaining about the fact that people just want to do good being Rita. Her delusions aren't helping her anymore. Uh, but she has a nice moment with the, the kid who's the living book. This poor kid has had his whole world turned upside down. He thought he had loving parents who were so caring and supportive and he thought he had a more positive role in the future of the world and he doesn't everything's a lie everything is false and so he figures the best way to solve all his problems is to kill himself it's an empty threat honestly like he escapes from where they're trying to hold him there's a whole scene where larry's negative being jumps out of his body before larry can stop the kid from running away and opens the door to let the kid go it was hilarious the kid ends up just perched on a window on the second floor of the mansion. Rita rightfully points out that if he was going to try to kill himself, jumping from the second floor wouldn't do anything except maybe break something. He'd be fine otherwise. But she talks him down anyway and lets him know that the world sucks. It's a horrible, nasty, insane, beautifully loving place. Like, so it's all of those things. And she too is trying to figure out her purpose in everything. And it was a nice cute moment. And then she takes him back to the room uh, where all these protection wards are for him. And um, they mess up something as so they have to get it fixed. So it's a whole moment of them trying to get stuff fixed. But then we also find out that the chaos magician, surprise, has a backup plan, which involves him killing the kid again. So Rita thankfully is there to stop that from happening. And we get to see her use her ability purposefully and not in just a resulting blob situation like we keep seeing it default to she effectively uses her her lives up to her elastigirl name and stretches her arm to stop the chaos magician from doing insanity to the kid 
Unfortunately, it's too little too late. Uh, there was a whole part on the main floor where Cyborg and the Chaos Magician were trying to stop the other entities from Nuremberg. I want to say Nuremberg so bad. Nuremheim from sh- uh, showing up to take the kid away. We got a nice little bit of science with Cyborg using a blast, blasting gun, cannon, blasting cannon of his arm to kill these things. Uh, we also had nice magic happening from the Chaos Magician who pulled out a literal flaming sword. They were doing pretty good, but they were quickly outnumbered. And as soon as the Chaos Magician saw that they were going to lose, instantly sacrificed Cyborg to save himself and run down and try to kill his kids. <laughs> Thankfully stopped by Rita. Unfortunately, the kid gets taken by the nuns of the razor, something insane. And they read from him and they get the eye open. The eye shows up on the middle of the sky. Show. On the cliff side of things, he's still dealing with his emotions and the, his duality and dealing with his negative being and what the hell all that means. He keeps waking up to seeing that damn chief video of him talking to the chief. Uh, except... This time, he, like, lets it play out. I don't, it's accidental. He accidentally lets it play out. But he sees that the chief managed to talk to his negative being. And so he gets he gets intrigued. And he starts, follow, you know, following what's going on. The chief in the video has created this device for the negative being to slip into. To give it a voice. Because it's really just a being of, I guess, radioactive energy. Walking around. He gets into this little device... The chief is immediately asking him a bunch of questions. Where are you from? How did you get here? Why are you living in in Larry? Like, what is going on? What's it like living in Larry? Why are we doing this? And essentially, we find out that the experience that this being has being attached to Larry is torture for it. But clearly, they're dependent on each other to stay alive. But Larry finally sees, oh, that's right. It's not just about me. There's another person in this. Oh, yeah. That's right. So it it was a nice little eye opener for Larry. And it's kind of great that he sees this being. It it looks like it was a, a turn of the page for Larry in seeing that this being is just as stuck as he is. They also had a nice little fight scene. There's a whole moment where those, and those Nur, Nuremheim creatures are coming down the hallway to get to the kid and Larry's like anytime now you can jump out now you can stop what's happening any day now (laughs) and he gets overtaken but we also see that flash of light leave his body and everything we we see it taking care of the creatures so there was that but again like I said it was a little too late eventually those creatures get the kid read from the kid chaos is starting to happen Cliff and Jane are stuck in Nuremheim the others are stuck from the, watching from the mansion as the eye opens up and it looks like it's the end of the world. End of episode. And apparently part one of two. We're going to get two episodes dedicated to this cult for some reason that came out of nowhere. And we are moving away from the story about finding the chief. Again, this is a limited series. I want to say Titans only had 11 episodes. I'm sure Doom Patrol doesn't have more than that. I'm pretty positive doom patrol is not getting more than that and this was episode four so and that means we're into episode five we're going to continue this random side story and not focus on the chief i'm i'm i need dc to get it together honestly like you have so much promise your stories are amazing your stories are amazing there's a reason 
they've stuck around. Clearly. Clearly is the reason they stuck around. Why you have the fan base that you do. Why people go out to buy the merch and the books and see these films and watch these shows. There's a reason for all of this. I don't know why you were trying to fight yourself so hard to like really push everybody's trust in you. Like I don't, I don't get it. And it could just be me being like, tell a better story. Like I don't understand why this is happening the way it's happening. But uh, sure, the pacing is weird. The comedy works for the most part for me in, with Doom Patrol. It's campy and insanely over the top, which works. But this two-parter is definitely detracting from the from the overall story that we're getting in this limited series. Why are we doing that? How, how is this structured? So I don't, yeah, that's my only gripe. Otherwise, it was it's a fun ride. It's definitely way more fun than Teen Titans. Isn't I want to call it Teen Titans so bad. Just Titans. It's definitely way more fun than more fun than Titans. I still think Cyborg is oddly placed in Doom Patrol. It's working as a counterpoint for a lot of people. He's definitely playing the, the straight man to everybody's insanity. But I, I feel like he's getting the short end of the stick when we're talking about character growth. He's kind of stuck in one place. He's this guy who used to be a big name who seems to have been kind of fallen from grace a little bit and is completely dependent on his dad. It's a weird, weird situation for him. And I don't understand why we couldn't explore this with the other Titans. So anyhow, other than that, oh, and real quick, Alec Mappa's character from episode three, back on the puppet cult, I forgot to mention at the very, very, very end of that episode, he steps out of uh, apparently the entire time the team was over there making a mess of things and killing people all over the place he was getting his treatment done because he had gone to get magnetic feet from 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 Von Fix. um but apparently he cooked too long in the little container that he was in and when he steps out he's got like a, a rock salt leg celery hands a raptor head and arm connected to him (laughs) like a rock is it like a rock or it's like a tree leg a lot of things are happening to him and then a regular human head as well and he loves it he loves the new him that just came out of this container and apparently this is he's a he is the embodiment of a literal comic book character in the dc universe called animal vegetable mineral man Comics are so weird. So weird. Literal thing. I would have never guessed that. I had to look it up. I was like, what What did this mean? Why is this here? Why did we get it? That was it. To add to the weird for Doom Patrol. And I enjoy it when it does stuff like that. But this random two-parter in the latest episode, not understanding what's going on there. But that is going to wrap it up for the Kirby Geeky Fangirl podcast. Thank you for joining me on this very long ride of catch up between the magicians and doom patrol um i am currently watching the order it is a mess of a series it is very much a good value magicians but i am going to finish it for the sake of this podcast because it's just it's just too much to talk about for me not to finish the show so that is something going to be happening in the next episode hopefully you guys are catching up or have watched 
if you're interested in it. The Order. I'm also going to be diving deep into Captain Marvel. I watched Captain Marvel over the weekend. I quite enjoyed myself. Is it a perfect film? No. No. But is it a fun ride? Yeah. So I'm going to dive more into all of that as well. Give it a week to cook and simmer, you know, and then get into spoilers for that. So that's what's going to be what I'm going to be talking about next week. I'm also going to be catching up on the latest episodes of Magicians and Doom Patrol so that I am back on track. And yeah, get all that situated and ready for you. Let me know if there's any other shows or films you think I should be watching. A bunch of stuff just dropped on Netflix that is very much in my wheelhouse that I am very excited to tackle. So that's going to be going on. Uh, Film-wise, Us is happening. Not this week, but next week. So Jordan Peele's Us will be launching, and I am excited to see what that is all bringing. I watched Get Out in the theater. The best decision ever. I highly recommend if you're going to go watch a Jordan Peele film to watch it in a theater, live and in person, with your fellow theater friends. Even if they're random strangers, they will be your friend halfway through that movie because... It was just such an experience. So definitely all of that. And I wanted to give a quick shout out to all my fellow black girls who watch anime. There was a whole discussion on Twitter that kind of came up. I don't even think it was the last week or the week before where I don't even know why we're still having this conversation in 2019, but somebody was doubting the legitimacy of black women watching anime. Of course, black girls watch anime. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we watch it? more questions if you grew up in the 90s at all you got a taste of it through sailor moon that was on everybody's television everybody's television dragon ball z saturated the mainstream for quite some time everybody has a touch of it and a lot of us who got that little bitty taste then grew up to be people who could get our hands on it and get really deeply involved in the anime role we asked why we have funimation is why we have Crunchyroll and who, all the other streaming services that allow us to watch this stuff. Of course, black girls watch it. What the? F- Why? Why would you even question that? So shout out to my fellow weirdos, my fellow black girls that watch anime, love geek stuff. Of course, we exist. We're definitely out here. We're definitely loud about it. So just want to say I appreciate you guys. I love you guys. I hope you get, I hope everybody has a great week and I will be returning next week. Bye.